Well, before we get to the sermon, I'll deal with an unfortunately common problem. I'll talk about this. The sermon will be different at each Mass, but this part won't be because it, it just it comes up so often that I feel the need to deal with it. I talked about it last year. Everybody's probably heard the claims that we're not exactly sure that Christ our Lord was actually born on December 25th. We don't really know the exact date of Jesus' birth. And the reason that we celebrate Christmas on this day is because in ancient times, this is a pagan feast, and so the church decided that rather than suppressing the pagan feast, it would be easier just to substitute with the feast of our Lord's birth. Uh, This is all nonsense. Let's clear it up once and for all. Where did the church get the idea that Christ our Lord was born on December 25th? Start with Pope uh, St. Telus Forrest I. He's Pope from around 126 to 136. So he's the Bishop of Rome at that time. He ordered that from henceforth there should be three Masses set on the day of the Nativity of our Lord, one at midnight, one at dawn, and one after sunrise. As one commentator points out, quote, This goes to show that the Roman tradition runs right up to the time of the Apostles. There's no mention of the date on which this festival of Christmas was then held, but the Roman Church never knew any other date than the 25th of December. It will be observed that the Pope does not institute the festival of Christmas. It existed before his time. We're not brought fairly in sight of the days when Saints Peter and Paul preached Christ and him crucified to the Romans. There might easily have been living in the pontificate of Telesphorus men who had seen and conversed with Saint Peter himself, the first vicar of Christ on earth. Close quote. The ancient Christian author Tertullian, he lived from 160 to 220 A.D., writes of the census of Augustus and speaking of that says, quote, The Roman archives contain the census of Augustus, which is the most faithful witness of the nativity of our Lord. Close quote. And Tertullian assures us that the records contain the name of the most blessed Virgin Mary. Quote, In the Roman census is described Mary, from whom was born Christ. Close quote. St. Hippolytus of Rome, he's martyred around 236, writes, quote, The first advent of our Lord in the flesh when he was born in Bethlehem was December 25th, close quote. The great doctor of the church, St. Augustine, not only testifies to the fact that the date of Christmas is a definite tradition in his day, but he also uses the fact that Christmas is on December 25th as a proof that our Lord was conceived in the month of March. Quote, For that month of March, Christ was conceived and died, which is shown by the most well-known feast day of his birth, close quote. Besides appealing to the tradition of the church, St. Augustine also appeals to the ancient Roman records, which still existed in his day. Quote, we have evidence in whose consulship the consuls uh, basically are very prominent government officials. At the time of, of St. Augustine, they, or our Lord's birth, rather, they were appointed by the emperor. Anyway, we have evidence in whose consulship and on what day the Virgin Mary gave birth to Christ. Close quote. In the East, in a sermon preached in 386, the great doctor of the church, St. John Chrysostom, states, quote, It is not yet ten years since this day, Christmas on the 25th of December, was clearly known to us, but has been familiar from the beginning to those who dwell in the West. We have got the date from those who dwell in Rome and who have accurate information on this point. For they who lived there, who long before celebrated the day in courts with ancient tradition, communicated the knowledge of it to us. Close quote. And St. John Chrysostom not only appeals to the tradition of the church in Rome, but he also appeals to the ancient Roman records. Quote, he who has a mind to read the public records that are kept in Rome can easily learn the exact time of this enrollment. Close quote. So we know the time when our Lord was born. It's an immemorial tradition of the church 
in Rome. So these claims that we don't really know the exact date of Christ or Lord's birth are just plain wrong. But it's easier to demonstrate than that. Anybody can do this by repeating a little experiment, which I've done any number of times. I just did the other day to somebody here. But instead of picking on them, I called up a good friend of mine who has seven kids. And I asked her three questions. First question, hey, Denise, do you remember the birthday of your oldest child? Answer, well, she's laughing. And she answered in one of those uh, female tones that means something like, only a man would be stupid enough to answer a question like ask a question like but she's way too polite to say that because I'm a priest. Anyway, she says, why, sure I do. Second question, do you remember the time the child was born? Yes, I do. Third question, do you remember what the weather was like? Yes, I do. So far, I have yet to read a mother that can't answer those questions. And it's a cinch bet if I called on any of the mothers here, you could each give the same answers to those three questions. What mother could possibly forget the birth of her oldest child? And the Blessed Virgin Mary is the perfect woman. Are we supposed to believe that she forgot when Jesus was born? Does anybody really think that Our Lady forgot? Does anybody really think that the Blessed Virgin Mary, as in the mother of God, the woman created by God himself to be his mother, forgot his birthday? It's a no-brainer. Our Lady knew when Jesus was born... And if people have been paying attention, the apostles knew Our Lady. St. Peter knew Our Lady. She's living with St. John. If Our Lord hadn't already told the apostles, they could have just asked Our Lady. One thing's for sure, they didn't make up the date of Christmas just to substitute for some pagan party. She would have corrected them. There's absolutely no reason to doubt the date of Christian. Our Lord was born at midnight on December 25th, 2011 years ago today. This is a historical religion. Now that we have the date, let's go to the sermon. Tonight we'll take a closer look at the Midnight Mass Gospel. We'll read uh, along and make comments, insert comments as we go. So I'll start by reading the Gospel. Gospel of St. Luke, Chapter 2. And it came to pass that in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled. This enrolling was first made by Serenius, the governor of Syria. And all went to be enrolled, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to be enrolled with Mary as his espoused wife, who was with child. And it came to pass that when they were there, her days were accomplished, that she should be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son. Now let's pause and take a moment to talk about just how she brought forth her firstborn son. St. Augustine summarizes the teaching of the church here, quote, She was a virgin before the birth, during the birth, and after the birth. Close quote. St. Augustine, Father, Bishop, Doctor of the Church. The great Thomistic theologian, Father Gergul Grange, merely echoes St. Augustine when he states the teaching of the Church regarding Our Lady's perpetual virginity. Quote, The Church teaches three truths concerning Mary's virginity, that she was a virgin in conceiving our Savior, that she was a virgin in giving him birth, and that she remained a virgin her whole life through. Close quote. And if there were any doubt left, the First Lateran Council... In 649, under Pope St. Martin, taught infallibly, quote, 
If anyone does not properly and truly confess in accord with the Holy Fathers that in the true and proper sense the Holy Mother of God and ever-Virgin Immaculate Mary in this last age, not with human seed, but of the Holy Spirit, properly and truly conceived the divine word himself, who was born of God the Father before all ages, and that she gave him birth without any detriment to her virginity, which remained inviolable even after his birth, let him be anathema. Close quote. All right, so what does all this mean with regard to the birth of our Lord? It means that in the first place, just as Christ our Lord on Easter Sunday passed through that sealed tomb without opening it, so on Christmas he passed out of the womb of his mother into the world without depriving her of her virginity. The great French preacher, Bishop Bossuet, describes the Lord's birth. Quote, He comes forth like a shaft of light, like a ray of the sun. His mother wonders to see him appear all at once. This confinement is as free of cries as it is of pain and force. Miraculously conceived, he is born more miraculously still. And the saints have found his being born even more wonderful than his being conceived. Close quote. We should keep in mind that the fact that Our Lady is immaculate conceived means that she was spared the punishment of original sin that other women suffer, which is the pains of childbirth. Bosway mentions this. We can hear the same point explained a little more clearly by that great father and doctor church, St. Gregory of Nyssa. Quote, His mother's burden was light, the birth immaculate, the delivery without pain, the nativity without defilement. For as Eve, who by her guilt engrafted death into her nature, was condemned to bring forth in pain, it was fitting that she who brought life into the world, Our Lady, would accomplish her delivery with joy. Close quote. So the points that we should take away from here in the first place, the perpetual virginity of Our Lady, which means that Our Lady was a virgin in conceiving our Savior, giving birth to him, and which, as we heard, was in itself miraculous, and that she remained a virgin her whole life through. And second, that because of her immaculate conception, Our Lady suffered no pain whatsoever in bringing forth our Lord. Now, mothers, although it's true that she didn't suffer in bringing forth our Lord, she didn't get off lightly because she suffered terribly in giving spiritual birth to all the rest of us, especially at the foot of the cross when she cooperated with her son in bringing forth the church. On first Saturdays, we actually make communions of reparation for certain offenses and blasphemies committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary, including blasphemies which attack her Immaculate Conception, things like stating that she would suffer pain during childbirth, or blasphemies against her perpetual virginity. Now, given the catastrophic state of catechesis uh, in the past 40-some years, it's not too surprising that some Catholics might have fallen into these errors Besides a terrible catechesis, many Catholics may have picked up these blasphemous ideas by innocently watching things like that, that uh, terrible movie, The Nativity Story, and other uh, filth in that genre. Let's return to the Gospel. Luke 7, 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him up in swaddling clothes. These swaddling clothes are still in existence. Charlemagne made Aachen, Germany, the capital of the Holy Roman Empire, and in the year 786, built the Palatine Chapel. It's now part of the Cathedral of Aachen. He collected many important relics from the Holy Land and Rome to place in this chapel, including the swaddling clothes of the baby Jesus. 
These relics uh, have been exposed for the devotion of the faithful every seven years. They, they set them out once every seven years. They've been doing that since the 14th century. The next exposition will be in 2014. Return to the gospel. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. St. Justin Martyr, he's a native of Palestine. He was born uh, within 50 miles of Bethlehem in the year 100, just about the time that St. John the Apostle died. So here we have a man who is himself a witness to the belief of the earliest Christians in and around Bethlehem, many of whom had known and heard the preaching of the apostles themselves. St. Justin Martyr writes, quote, Since Joseph could not find any lodging in the village, he took up his quarters in a certain cave near the village, and it was while they were there that Mary gave birth to the Christ and laid him in a manger. Close quote. In the year 132, the Emperor Hadrian desecrated the holy places by building pagan shrines over all of them. As one author points out, this served a very useful purpose of making the holy places very, uh, marking the holy places very precisely until the end of the persecutions and liberation of the church by Constantine in the year 313. During most of the 34 years that St. Jerome lived in Bethlehem, he lived there from 386 to 420, he lived and studied in a cave close to that, and close to the one that our Lord was born in. Quote, from the time of Hadrian to the reign of Constantine, a period of about 180 years, the spot which had witnessed the resurrection was occupied by a figure of Jupiter, while on the rock where the cross had stood, a marble statue of Venus was set up by the heathen and became an object of worship. The original persecutors, indeed, supposed that by polluting our holy places, they would deprive us of our faith in the passion and the resurrection. Even my own Bethlehem, as it is now, that most venerable spot in the whole world, was overshadowed by a grove of Tammuz, that is, of Adonis. And in the very cave where the infant Christ had uttered his earliest cry, the lover of Venus was bewailed. Close quote, St. Jerome, doctor of the church. St. Jerome also wrote of the manger, quote, I too, miserable sinner that I am, have an account of worthy to kiss the manger in which the Lord cried as a babe. Close quote. Apparently during his time it was removed, for later on he wrote, quote, If I could only see that manger in which the Lord lay, now as if to honor the Christ, we have removed the poor one and placed there a silver one. However, for me, the one which was removed is more precious. Close quote, St. Jerome. In the year 640, the Muslims uh, swept into Jerusalem, the surrounding environs, and during the reign of Pope Theodore I, he himself was a native of Jerusalem. He ruled from 642 to 649. During his reign, some relics from the cave were brought to Rome for safety. There were five boards made out of sycamore wood that had been part of the manger. They're now in a beautiful reliquary that's uh, found in the crypt underneath the, the, the main altar in St. Mary Major. If you go there, you can go down below it. And the, the, the reliquary, it's like a big silver bowl with a, it, on the top, it, it's, it's silver with golden angels, and on the top, it's it, this scene with a, a golden statue of our Lord, a little baby, and he's kind of rolled up a little bit on his left side, and, and he's right, raised his right hand, really, little chubby little baby, and he's given a blessing right there. But on the, the, the sides of the reliquary have crystal windows. So you can look through the windows. It's easy. You can just look right through the windows and see the boards in there. You can get different angles and all that. So you can look right through them and see the boards right there. And uh, that's in St. Mary Major. Returning to the gospel. And they were in the same country, shepherds watching and keeping the night watches over their flock. Of course, the fact that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. 
In fact, some 800 years before our Lord's birth, the prophet Micah, that's Micah, spoke clearly about the small village of Bethlehem in this regard. Quote, And thou, Bethlehem art a little one among the thousands of Judah. Out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel. And his going forth is from the beginning, from the days of eternity. Close quote. Out of Bethlehem shall he come forth that is to be the ruler of Israel. And his going forth is from the beginning, from the days of eternity. That's not all. Genesis 35.21 speaks of a watchtower near Bethlehem that was used by shepherds to keep watch over the flocks. It's called the flock tower. That's Genesis 35.21. An ancient Jewish commentary on this passage, Genesis 35.21, records the belief that the Messiah was to be revealed from that very tower near Bethlehem, from this flock tower. I'll read a few cut-and-pasted patches from a commentary written 150 years ago by a rabbinic student who suddenly uh, discovered that Christ was the Lord. He, ends, he dies as an Anglican priest. Okay, quote, Jewish tradition may here prove both illustrative and helpful. That the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem was a settled conviction. Equally so was the belief that he was to be revealed from Migdal Eder, the Tower of the Flock. This tower of the flock was not the watchtower for ordinary flocks, which pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. The flocks which pastured there were destined for temple sacrifices. Accordingly, the shepherds who watched over them were not ordinary shepherds. These flocks lay out all the year round. Thus, Jewish tradition in some dim manner apprehended the first revelation of the Messiah from that watchtower, where shepherds watched the temple flocks all the year round. Of the deep symbolic significance of such a coincidence, it is needless to speak. It was then on that wintry night of the 25th of December that shepherds watched the flocks destined for sacrificial services in the very place consecrated by tradition as that where the Messiah was to be first revealed. Close quote, Alfred Eidersheim. What about Catholic tradition? In Father Haydock's commentary on that same verse in Scripture, Genesis thirty-five twenty-one. We read that the flock tower was quote about a mile to the east of Bethlehem, where the angels appeared to announce the birth of Christ. Saint Helena built a church there in honor of the angels. Close quote. There's a Catholic and a Greek Orthodox church there today. Returning to the gospel, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the brightness of God shone round about them, and they feared with a great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all the people. For this day is born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And suddenly it was with an angel, a multitude of the heavenly army, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. What's going on here? Well, as you've seen before, The fathers teach that each nation has its own guardian angel. His main job is to guide the people of that nation in the ways of holiness and righteousness. Fathers also teach that before the coming of Christ, the Gentile nations had increasingly rejected the knowledge of the true God, which they had learned originally from their ancestor Noah. Because of their blatant rejection of God, the guardian angels of those nations had a terrible time just trying to prevent their people from falling farther and farther into sin, idolatry, and outright devil worship. Eusebius gives a clear description of the condition of fallen man on that first Christmas. Quote, 
In such a flood of evil, the angels who had first been set in charge of the nations could do nothing for their subjects. Because of man's own free choice of evil, the peoples, each in its own way, were driven on by evil spirits and fell into a frightful abyss of vices. Even the Jewish nation was drawn into their corruption. Now, since such great evils had fallen upon the whole earth, since none of the angels were able to prevent these evils, and since the race God loved was wallowing in the depths of iniquity, and since the activity of the demons continued to increase day by day, the Savior himself came to men and helped his angels in their work for the salvation of men. And then when he was seen by his own angels, who were first set up as guardians over the nations, they immediately recognized their Lord coming to their aid and went to him joyously. Just as sacred scripture says, there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. Close quote. So on that cold, quiet Christmas night in Bethlehem, when the guardian angels of the nations realized that the little Lord Jesus, wrapped up in swaddling clothes, and laid in the manger, had come to earth, they immediately realized that their Lord and God had stooped down to earth to come to the aid of not only the Hebrew people, but to the aid of all the nations on earth. That he'd come to help his angels. That he'd come to make it finally possible to turn their poor, confused people away from the road to destruction and on the path to heaven. So what are we seeing on this first Christmas? We're seeing an ambassador from heaven. We're seeing the second person of the most blessed trinity come on a peace mission to his enemies. He came in peace to his enemies. He came on a mission of mercy, divine mercy for sinners. He came to bring peace on earth to men of goodwill. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of the manger. Merry Christmas.